Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, the host of this podcast, and I'm so excited to have you here. A bit about me, I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur and investor who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. The Dear 20-something podcast started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful changemakers they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts, we're here to humanize the whole thing. You'll hear from successful trailblazers who will share the highs and lows of their 20s, and you'll also get words of wisdom from some experts who will speak on a certain topic relevant for 20-somethings. And then sometimes it'll just be me, on the mic, hosting an episode where I share recent reflection or story from my own life, as I too am navigating this wild decade. We're so happy to have you here. Let's get started. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Helene Servion. Helene is the founding partner of Journey One Ventures, a 100% women and minority owned early stage cannabis fund that invests in founders with prior executive level management experience in cannabis or tangential industries. The Journey One team has 45 years of combined cannabis expertise and is focused on uncovering the biggest pain points in the industry. They're focused on investing in the most venture scale sectors of the market, which includes tech, tech enabled services and companies with unique IP. She's also a senior advisor to Bowen's Cannabis Practice, a Boston based investment bank with a 20 year track record in capital raise advisory and buy side and sell side M&A mergers and acquisitions. Their cannabis practice covers tech, licensed operators, and ancillary services. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20 Something. Please welcome Helene Servion. Hello, hello, hello. I wish we had that background, you know, when they're filming TV shows in LA, they have like the sound clap. <laughs> you know, it's actually so funny you say that. I started hosting this show first on an app called Fireside. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mark Cuban started it maybe a year ago. And one of their value props is audience reactions. Like you can clap, you can laugh, you can do all these things live. I only do a, one show there now. It was better to do it this way for me, but they're literally building that. So maybe you're a psychic. Yeah. My mom is slightly psychic. So is she probably actually? runs the blood. Is she really? Yeah. So I am first generation Filipino and Filipinos are typically really spiritual. So she says that all of her children have their own unique powers, but she can read palms and uh, do a few other cool modern day witchy stuff. And we grew up raised Catholic. I'm not really religious, but, you know, of course, when I go back to the family, it's like, got to respect the sweet baby Jesus. I love it. And got to respect mom too, you know, if mom's got a way of doing things. Okay, wait, let's hear about your palm what does it say? And also, like, what does she say your strengths are? You said she, she's she got good intuition knowing, like, who's good at what. Oh, well, I don't know how to read my palms, so you're asking the wrong person. And she doesn't really like to read her children's palms for some reason, but I have had her do it. But she says that my superpower is the power of command. <laughs> so when you ask my fiancé that question, he's like, yep, for sure. <laughs> he, like, whispered it to your mom before. He was like, tell her that's the power. Wait, what about your siblings? What are theirs? I'm so curious. My sister has a really deep intuition for people when she meets them. It's like this, I don't know, like sense of like who they are off the bat. And so she's really sensitive to some people. And I remember in high school, she was like, I don't like that friend. And I was like, you're not being nice. Like, why are you saying that? And now as an adult, I'm like, yeah, that person wasn't great. So. Wow. She really does know. Don't ask about my brothers. I 
they have their own special uniqueness to them. So I'll just call it, that's their superpower. (laughs) That nobody knows yet, but it's still special and unique. Do you think that the command thing is right about you? Do you feel like that resonates? You know, it's like when people tell you you are something, you kind of step into that power a lot more. And I believe so. You know, as a younger adolescent, I was really an introvert. And in middle school, I was picked on. And so I think that made me turn into an extrovert in high school to uh, put up some guards and be able to protect, protect myself. And so, you know, that kind of started off like being more social, outgoing, but was always really like ambitious and curious as a little kid. And sports was really what got me to build confidence. I mean, confidence socially, right? Because sports and teams gives you community, a sense of belonging, and then you can use that infrastructure to build your confidence. When you're good at something, that's what creates confidence in yourself. So my first sport ever was baseball. I played when I was in fourth grade. My mom worked two jobs, and so it made a lot of sense. I'd find some way to entertain myself so that she could pick me up at some point at like the school playground area. And I was a shortstop and pitcher, so I've got a pretty nasty arm. And, you know, got to middle school and they wanted me to play softball because I was a girl and I was really confused. I was like, this thing is so big and the bat is different. Why do I have to play this? And, you know, the, the coach on the baseball team in middle school was like big masculine, like, you know, baseballs for boys, very gender forming, uh, conforming type person. And so I ended up playing softball <laughs> and then I discovered volleyball, which, uh, is a sport that I still play today and dedicated a lot of my life to. It's so cool to hear how athletic you were. I will say as someone who really thinks of themselves as like a commanding person, I like to be leadership roles, but like sports just never, I think I just wasn't actually good at them. I think that's the real truth. And so (laughs) it sounds like you were like not only good at the team stuff, but you were actually like talented at the sport, which like I think... Not that I forget that, but it's like, yeah, the team stuff is great and being part of, you know, the softball team in, in high school or whatever, but you actually have to be good at the sport, which I was never good at. So I can't relate, but it sounds like that was a really formative experience for you being a part of a lot of these teams. Yeah, I think there is a natural ability that I had, but then once I started playing like super competitive, I played on a, a travel team in high school. And uh, fun fact, I was cut from my volleyball team in middle school when I first tried out. (laughs) And my middle school was like a feeder school to my high school. I grew up in San Francisco. And so our middle school won like 10 year championships in a row. The high school that I went to, we won 15 championships in a row. And so, you know, I was like flexing on the court and then, you know, little do you know, I get cut. But I spent that whole summer afterwards playing at like a rec facility in San Francisco, just like a public community with like playing with like old Chinese people who have really unique technique playing volleyball and just like learning from them and then later making the team. Once you find something you like, it's a deeper level of commitment when you want to become like an expert and like a pro at it. And I think that experience playing sports gave me the foundation to do that in my career. But going to the power of command, I do believe that I have an ability to really just get what I want. And I believe that Anything in the world is possible for anyone to achieve. It just, you know, depends on what frameworks you use for success to get there. And when you're getting pushed down, the frameworks you use to get out of those droughts. 
So it's I've, I've done a lot of personal development and getting to the place I am today. But as a young kid, was always ambitious. Yeah, I can see that you have such like a clear perspective on this. And as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like, yep, power of command. That that tracks as an outsider. <laughs> You're like, I get what I want and I bring myself back up. I'm like, oh yeah, she does. So you talk a little bit about like the frameworks you use. And I think a lot of 20-somethings especially are learning what frameworks work for them, trying to look at experts like, how do you make decisions? How do you get out of a funk? And a lot of the times it is so personal, like you have to figure out what works for you. But I'd love to know like, yeah, what are your frameworks? And maybe someone can kind of take it and try it themselves if they're in a funk or they want to be an expert at something, but it's hard. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't really have frameworks in my early 20s. It was just more like work your ass off until, you know, you get to your end goal. And you have so much energy in your early 20s where you can really do that. And now I'm 32 and my body is different. I do work where it's cerebrally more challenging and actually more exhausting. So I can only, I can't work as long because by the end of the day, I'm just like done. Like every two hours I build into my calendar a 10 minute walk or meditation or just get away from my screen or I just can't work as long. But I did a program in my late 20s when I was 27 called Landmark. And it was a personal professional development program. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before. It's pretty big in LA. I have. My mom actually did it. I. It's so funny you say it. I think she did it like 10 years ago. And hearing you say it, I'm getting this like weird deja vu. She totally did it. The Landmark. Yeah. And it's like a personal development, like retreat courses type thing. Yeah. Not like a retreat where it's like really sexy. You go to this place. It's kind of like a, not like a super fancy environment that you would imagine where like, you know, executives and leaders go, but, you know, Panda Express corporate sends their employees. I believe like the Lululemon CEO was really big in the landmark. And I had gotten into it because I was walking with my buddy in Topanga one year, this is like 2016. And I was just starting to have like really bad anxiety issues. And I didn't want to get on like SSRIs and Zoloft and stuff like that. And he was like, you should just practice being present. And I was like, what? I don't even know what that means. Like, it sounds really silly, but like, I don't even, I can't relate to what that word means. And so he's like, you know, I did a program called Landmark, you should look into it. And he was Alex and, and Eric have also done it. And we were hiking with each other, but there were a couple a feet away from me. And I was like, wow, Alex and Eric have noticeably been different the last three months and a lot happier. I should check out this program. So essentially, I went in to focus on work things with the programming. And a lot of what I learned is more personal things that were prohibiting me to accomplish everything that I wanted in life, whether it was personal relationship or family relationships. And so I did that program for a year straight. Wow. What commitment was it? Probably about five hours a week. Wow. Five hours a week. That's a lot. The first program you do, it's three days and like eight hours each a day, like back to back. And then that gives you the opportunity to do other programming. You know, they teach you concepts about how to find your blind spots. So a blind spot could be, you know, I want to be a morning person, but I'm a night person. And I keep on changing my behavior and routines that I just don't understand what's blocking me. And sometimes maybe it's like a motivation that you need to get up in the morning. Like for me, that was class pass. When I was doing a career pivot into enterprise tech and cannabis, I was working two jobs and had to get up at five o'clock to do a 6 a.m. workout. And I would never go to a 6 a.m. gym, but if I had a class to go to, and if I didn't go to that class, I'd pay $15 <laughs> 
then that would motivate me to go. So that program helped me uncover my personal blind spots. And that really catalyzed me to, you know, quit my job in tech and become a venture capitalist and decide that I was good enough to be a fund manager without having to be necessarily like an analyst and associate and go straight from like, you know, learning how to invest to running a fund, which is a massive leap and pretty intimidating. It was back then for me, but now that I'm in the thick of it, it's like, man, it feels so long ago. Yeah. And I'm, it's so cool that you had all these like professional realizations from a personal workshop. Like, I think we underestimate how connected those things are. And like a lot of the times, a lot of the personal anxieties and stuff actually does stem from work. Okay. So let's maybe take it back a little bit. This landmark thing is very cool, by the way. And I, I want to talk to you more about this later. Um, quick thought, but actually before we take it back, have you heard of the Hoffman process at all or the Hoffman Institute? Is it the breathing exercise? That's Wim Hof. But the Hoffman is like, it's almost like a more fancy, probably sexier version of the landmark. But it's actually about kind of like uncovering trauma from your childhood. And it's a little bit more like from my understanding, the landmark is more like finding your blind spots and a little bit more like in the scale of like how deep you go, you kind of only get to a five. Whereas like with Hoffman, you get to more of like a one or two and it's like a week long thing. If you're interested in a lot of this personal development stuff, I feel like you could actually really like Hoffman. Depends how deep you want to go or if you feel like there's like stuff to work on at all. But I've heard the best things about it. There's always stuff to work on. I know. Said like a real entrepreneur, there's always ways to get better. Okay, so let's take it back. So we didn't get to this part and I actually, actually it's like one of my favorite questions. So I'm going to ask you, we typically start our shows with like a fun thing you learned this past week. So maybe we just start there. Like obviously we learned that your mom is amazing at reading palms and knows her children better than anyone, but like something else, something fun you learned. It could be maybe like a company you're excited about, a conversation you had, whatever comes to mind. So I, you know, have been specialized in the cannabis industry for the past five years and, you know, how I'm growing. There's a couple different segments. There's the plant-based movement, which I'm a firm believer, believer in for being an athlete. There's working in highly regulated markets. And that includes psychedelics as well as uh, alcohol. So I've been doing more work in those sectors in addition to cannabis to diversify my work. But Journey One, the fund, we're only focused on cannabis investments right now. On the banking side, that's where I've diversified some of my experience. And the psychedelics industry is, is one that I have a personal relationship with from just you know, recreational consumption. and. I knew that I was eventually going to work in the space, but was waiting for the right time and right calling, to be totally honest, because I think there's a lot of noise when new markets come up. And then that brings in a ton of interesting characters that aren't always, always fun to work with. And so I was, I was waiting for that opportunity. So at Bowen, the investment bank that I work for, you know, we've been exploring the psychedelic space. And for some folks out there listening who are new, a way to learn about some of these substances and indications, substances being the drugs and indications being use cases, there is a documentary or a docu-series on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. The fun thing about the doc is that it's really consumer-friendly. It talks about the history of LSD, mescaline, MDMA, and psilocybin, and then goes into where those drugs are at in regards to commercialization and coming out of 
the shadows of the war on drugs. And so I've been diving really, really deeply into that sector and the impacts that they have on mental health and wellness. And it's just really fascinating because getting into cannabis, I learned a lot about the endocannabinoid system, which is essentially the system in our body that receives cannabis compounds and makes us react to cannabis compounds. And within the, the psychedelics industry, you know, we don't really know, we're starting to only really learn a lot more about the brain and neural networks, even though we've created computers to do what our brains do. And so when you think about how pharma works, you know, today and the system that's in place, it's a trillion dollar industry with half of that in the U.S. market. It's a massive business, but it's also a little depressing because you know, some folks make it really unaffordable. And I think that medicine should be carefully profited at the most because it shouldn't be a privilege for, to, you know, to control someone's life. It should be a right to give them access to, to that. And so, you know, the psychedelics industry is really creating a paradigm shift in pharmaceuticals and how people think about how pharmaceuticals could work because with antidepressants like Zoloft and amphetamines like Adderall, these are drugs that people use every day and that they are conditioned to use every day. And it's a good business model from a capitalist perspective. But is it really good for people? Where some of these psychedelics, there's a setting and an integration. For ketamine, for example, which is a legal substance in the U.S., the street name is known for being like a horse tranquilizer, but it's a disassociative and it's really helpful for sleeping and relaxing. And that's how I understand it. But for ketamine, they have clinics that are designed for treatment of ketamine with patients. So you're going to the clinic and you're experiencing ketamine treatment with you know, a therapist at your side to walk you through it, to maybe help you work on something you want to talk about, but in a different state of mind that kind of like you know, maybe relaxes some parts of the brain that are hard to access without that drug. And so we could talk about this for a very long time, but I, you know, when you learn about something and it's different than in school because you're forced to, but as a professional, you can go on these journeys that give you the ability to really like dig into what excites you. And I think the way that you motivate people is really understanding where are their incentives and motivation. And for me, the connection between the impact that, you know, these substances have on people on a personal level, quite frankly, it's just way more fun than B2B tech. I invest in, in B2B tech and there's nothing, there's a lot of infrastructure that create the ability for, you know, us to consume products and things, but it just speaks to me on a different level. So I'm super excited to start doing more work in the sector. And this is probably one of the more formal announcements that I've had about doing so. Awesome. Well, thanks for giving us the exclusive. I've heard literally no one can will shut up about this documentary. I have yet to see it. I think it's such a fascinating area and I completely agree. Like when it comes to B2B tech, like don't get me wrong, there is cool stuff that can enable you to like distribute products and like make things easier on the back end, like fair. But I agree. There's something really exciting about being able to like unlock human potential and give people better health, better wellness outcomes. I think that's all we can all ask for, you know, as human beings. And it's really cool to hear. How are you exploring this market? So I know, obviously, you mentioned the documentary. I know you mentioned that this advisory firm that you work for, this investment bank, you're able to kind of dabble a little more. 
What are like the first things you do when you find an industry that you're excited about? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you reading books? Are you talking to experts? Are you like, what's kind of like your process? And then how do you pair that with like the investing side, angel investing, your fund, like Bowen stuff? Like, how do you think about that when you find a new area? Yeah, so great question because I've done five career pivots in my life. And that's probably two to three times more than most people do. My framework I've created is really structured around how I learn versus how I think I should learn. And so I'm a very like visual, like hands-on, throw me in the fire. I'll like create structure uh, amongst chaos. And I've always tried to get into books, but I'm just not a book person. And I'm not going to try to force myself at this point. So I always say that podcasts are my mentors. So you're probably, you know, subconsciously being a mentor to just many, many people that are listening to your pod, Erica. So that's one point. I usually try to find three newsletters that I respect that cover content that I really, really like. And then, you know, once you become a VC, you're really like the top echelon of super networkers. So <laughs> literally I was like, wow, this is, you know, it's going to be, take me a while to kind of build my Rolodex. And then I made like four phone calls and had like access to like 200 people and was like, whoa, all right, well, a lot more access than I thought I had. So in emerging markets, like, you know, Web3, NFTs, cannabis psychedelics, there's still a lot of groundwork that has not been set and foundation. So when people are like, oh, give me the statistics on this and like, what is this typical like company trade at? It's like, we haven't even seen these companies for more than, you know, a decade on the stock exchanges yet. So there aren't really benchmarks. So when it comes to industry expertise, I try to get into the group chats, WhatsApp chats on who's who in the industry that really knows everything. So I have like certain people on speed dial. I have certain people that I'm texting all the time. And I think whenever I need help, I try to be as helpful with folks so that we can you know, work collectively in like driving to our end goal. So I would say like framework is like high level macro and, and micro information from podcasts and newsletters, industry expertise and intelligence from folks in the space. I also tend to follow folks on Twitter and LinkedIn and kind of build my media consumption around things that I'm currently doing. I haven't necessarily refreshed that so that maybe I take away some of the other sectors that I've been focusing on and just like optimize my newsfeed. But I say like those are three pretty strong pillars that help guide me for knowledge. Yeah, that's super helpful. It's good to hear from people like yourself too. What is, so this is the thing that I always struggle with when I'm excited about something new. What is like the time needed for media consumption before I take action? So I always struggle, like as someone who's like, you're very entrepreneurial, obviously. So you want to build, you want to act, you want to do. Like if you see something with psychedelics, you might be like, yeah, I have a lot to learn, but I want to start. Like I want to like build, I want to learn, I want to... What's like that timeline between like giving yourself enough time to just absorb information, meet with people, follow enough people on your newsfeed, and then actually like doing something about it, like making that first investment and like actually telling the world that you're going to start doing stuff in psychedelics. Because I think there's like this weird gap where it's like marinating, but it's not out in the world yet. And I wonder how you think about like timing. And if you give yourself time or you say like, fuck it, I'm just going to like tell everyone and do stuff now right away. Yeah. So I have an executive coach right now. And one of the things that I've focused on doing is being 60% ready versus 100% ready. And so this goes back to your question around almost like, 
I forget that saying. It's like perfection kills. Yeah, perfection's the enemy of progress or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And so there's something really unique and inspiring about people who can just like get shit done without having to like do so much and they like fake it till they make it. And I think that tends to be kind of a male's perspective or like women are a lot more, let's be prepared and be ready. And so I'm trying to cut that time frame off because I've already accelerated so much in a lot of things. Like I don't really have to prove to myself that I can be a good investor. It's like, yes, I, I know I'm a good investor, a great investor, but now my trade is like evolving into other things. So when am I ready? I think that depends on your risk. But being 60% ready to me, you know, my coach was like, you know, your, 60, your 100% readiness is probably someone else's 2000%. My 60% is probably actually my 100%. And so when it comes to hesitation, I think the more you trust your intuition and kind of feel that like internal spidey sense of like, oh, that is what flow feels like. I think you just got to go for it because sometimes you really just don't have time. So when you think about some of like the best product companies in the world, they go through, they do like product sprints and it's like, you know, let's get the product up into a certain point and then launch it in market, reiterate, get some feedback and then build on top of that, right? You know, Taj Mahal didn't happen overnight, all those like funny sayings and it's true. So I, I think it just comes down to, you know, being bold and making decisions And then just knowing that you'll figure it out because there's something admirable about being fearless and just being able to get shit done without having to have like a whole entire structure in place. Yeah. Is there anything that your executive coach is helping you do other than just like practice and time to become more fearless? Because I think in reality, we can sit here, you and I, and chat about being fearless and being bold, but there's like a real fear I think a lot of people face in making career pivots and like in taking action and in starting that business. I find a lot of people, I was actually having a call with someone, if he's listening, he'll know I'm talking about him, but he was talking about how badly he wants to be an entrepreneur. He was saying how he works for a tech startup right now and he wanted to, he's like a, someone I knew from growing up and I took a call just to be nice and I want to be an entrepreneur. And I was like, fair, not saying you're wrong. But if you are an entrepreneur, you're building, you're acting, you're doing, you have projects on the side. Like, so I think there's like a big difference between like the talk and the acting. And so it's just like, how do you break through that fearlessness? How do you be bold when like, it is actually very hard and you're 24, you know what I mean? So my LinkedIn saying, am I saying all the time is like, be bold, be brilliant and be badass. And I think being bold, you end up being badass because you're just, you're doing something that a lot of people fear. And that is something that should be admired. You know, you're being bold when you, you, you experience discomfort in making a decision. Some people are like, oh, what does that action feel like? It's like, well, if you don't want to do something, it's either hard or you're not naturally inclined to do it. So your body and your brain is like a muscle. You just have to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing until it realizes that now this is the default way of being. Right. So, you know, One thing, you know, that I've learned through Landmark and other things is that we grow up, you know, a lot of people experience themselves in their early 20s as their past. And it would be way cooler if you can experience yourself as your future. Then you're not bringing your past to weigh you down from where your future could be. 
And so if that person, for example, that entrepreneur is like, he's like, all these reasons why I could not be ready to be an entrepreneur. When you start from that place, you're kind of starting with a lot of like daggers on the floor. If you come from the places like, these are all the reasons why I should be an entrepreneur. And I have all these amazing skill sets. Like that is a dreamer's mentality. And that's, you know, the beautiful part about being an entrepreneur is that you can truly dream and create as you're building. And so the, you know, the, the only way to get started is to just start doing and start putting a brick down one by one to build a house. And you're like, well, does that house look cool or should I build another one? <laughs> or did that just get burned into pieces? I have no idea, you know, but you don't really know until you start. And it's, you know, the same kind of analogies of playing sports. Like you're not on, you're not playing the game until you're on the field. You're not playing, watching on the sidelines. I remember one of, you know, I, w- I had dinner with my buddy who was friends with this guy who's working in finance. And he had the same thing to me. I was like, yeah, I worked in the electric bike industry. And he was like, that's, what is that? And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's bikes with batteries and motors. He's like, what do you do? It's like, I just like doing entrepreneurial startup stuff. And he's like, that sounds cool. And I was like, yeah, you should do it too. He later joined the Casper team as one of the early employees. And then now started a you know dog food company called Jinx. So once you get a bite of that entrepreneurial route, it really sets you on an interesting trajectory. But you have to find a way to get involved in a project. And there's high risk and low risk of being an entrepreneur, where a lot of people talk about side hustles or do you know, full blown send it like I do and not prepare and then just quit your job and not have benefits for a couple of years and literally eat crap for a long time and (laughs) figure it out that way. So depends on your stress, depends on your risk tolerance. Be bold. You're really doing the be bold thing. You're just like taking that to an extreme. You're like, I will be the boldest and I will go two years, no health insurance. Oh my God. Yeah, I think it's all such good advice. Probably longer than that. (laughs) Oh my God, really good advice. I also think like you don't know until you try if you like it. Because I think a lot of people say they want to be an entrepreneur, but it's really a certain skill set. And it's a certain high level of risk and tolerance, like you said, that bodes itself to doing well. So obviously you've had, like you said, you hinted at, you've had a few different careers, a a few career pivots, I shall say. I kind of bucketed them into like groups. There was like this like sales and marketing group right out of school where you did work at Vector Marketing, Reebok, Puma, doing like sales and marketing work for cool apparel brands and doing like marketing stuff. And a knife company. That's Vector Marketing. It's knives? I sold Cutco knives. Yeah. (gasps) Okay, so marketing and sales. Then after several years, you jumped to this e-biking phase, which we'll talk about. You worked for a few different e-biking startups and like really worked your way up. I see a couple other like miscellaneous like voice-based startup, consulting at some cannabis startups and agencies. And then you then launched like this new venture fund. So I want to go through briefly like each of the first two buckets, the sales and marketing, and then the e-bike. And then I want to have time to dive into more of the the VC stuff because I'm selfishly very excited and curious about it. So can you give me like the quick, the quick breakdown of why you started off in those marketing and sales roles, why you moved to e-biking? And yeah, we'll go, we'll start from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I described my twenties as following my curiosity and working in emerging industries, but I was born and bred an early stage startup operator, really was. When I worked for Puma and Reebok Corporate, I you know, was still in school at Northeastern. They have the co-op program. 
and I played sports. So my advisor was like, you should do the sport thing. And I was like, cool, let's try it out. I just thought corporate was so boring. Like I didn't have enough work to do. I had a lot of cool shoes, but it just was very limiting. I'm sorry. That's like a great line. Like the work was very boring, but I had cool shoes. I feel like we need to just like get that on a poster. And like a lot of people, I feel like they used to work in corporate. That's like a really good line. Okay. And so I did a lot of digital marketing and corporate comm. This is like prepaid media hitting the market with social and had a really, really interesting opportunity to work in the electric bike industry. So I got a job offer my senior year, spring semester before college graduated. And one of the alumni from Northeastern was a big you know, donator to the volleyball team and said, hey, I want to start this electric bike company. Do you think you want to do sales and marketing for me? And I was like, that sounds fun. They sent me to China that spring to go with them to a trade show, look at some factories. And I was like, this is awesome. Didn't do any negotiation on my salary before that and learned it a very, very hard way. And stayed in the electric bike industry, got into light electric vehicles, electric vehicles, and robotics. I couch surfed in China for a month going to factories I went to Geely, which is like a car company in China that's owned by Volkswagen and just got really into that sector. A lot of that was like, you know, I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. They wanted me to do sales and marketing. But what I ended up doing really was like helping incubate the entire company. But it was an entrepreneurial venture out of a textile company. So I learned a lot about how to, you have to have the right shareholders in place and the right experience to do, to execute a job well. But at that point in time, I didn't really have that experience. I just had a lot of ambition to do cool and fun shit. And so I really liked the space. I stayed in it for five years, but felt like it just wasn't for me culturally. It didn't align. I wasn't really a bike person. It was a male-dominated bro culture for the most part. And there's a ceiling on how much money you could make. So I had lunch with one of my friends who I went to Northeastern with. And uh, she was working for a company called VoiceBase, which is a you know enterprise tech company, voice analytics. She was telling me about the company. It was like, I thought, I think you would be great working with us. And I was like, I have no idea what any of these words mean. <laughs> we were having like Thai dinner in Palo Alto. Like what is enterprise B2B SaaS tech? SaaS. Like a lot of people have no idea. Like if we say enterprise SaaS, they're like, what is that? Yeah. So we did voice analytics. So we transcribed voice data for big telecoms like AWS and Twilio. And we built predictive models to help big companies utilize their voice data with their SMS data, email data, and to create like a holistic overview of what their customers are saying. So, you know, when, when someone says this call may be recorded for training purposes, they send us that call data and we do that fun work. So I, I learned how to talk to software engineers, data scientists. I learned how to do channel sales. It was really awesome opportunity. I really love the company, super smart team. They recently were acquired by LivePerson, which is a big telecom company. And, you know, once I had learned a lot about AI and machine learning, I just kind of was like, you know, this, I could go down this path, but I can't relate to these products on a human level, like on a personal level. And so I also ran into the same thing was like, you know, long-term, not culturally a fit for what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more. I don't want to be a cog in the wheel at a company. I want to be more influential 
and I want to be a venture capitalist. So that was the, the the quick story of how I got to that trajectory. And, you know, it was really intimidating. I won't lie. I didn't have a lot of friends in venture capital either to kind of tell me, this is how it works. Let me get you an internship. I remember when All Raised first formed, I was like, hey, like, you know, help me out. And it took them a while to get their things together. I've been a member now for the last two years, part of their uh, GP fund manager cohort. But, you know, 2017, 2018, it was just, it was hard. It was hard to break into venture capital at that time. And what was your understanding of venture capital at that time? I, I kind of knew what the job was like, but I didn't. And so what I did know was that the biggest tech companies in the world were funded by venture capitalists. And now they had lots of influence in the political systems to shape and shift elections and shape and shift culture. So I, I had known that like, okay, if I, if I want to be a part of that influence, level of influence, like this would be a great move next. And I know startups. So, you know, operators, you know, turn venture capitalists, ex-product managers, ex-founders, Unfortunately, I didn't have an exit from a company to like bankroll my fund, (laughs) but that was really the impetus. And I knew that I needed to focus on something. And so it was cannabis for me. I love the plant, grew up in San Francisco and the consumer loved the diversity of the industry. The culture was super attractive and, and vibrating. When I'd step into the room, I'd be like, wow, I used to work in super male dominated industries and the cannabis industry is super diverse. And it felt like very cowboy back then, still is. And, you know, that was kind of the the impetus. And I was able to work for two family offices and then went to a VC trade school. So I I started to learn process. And then I just got in the field and started doing deals one by one. My first deal was in January 2019. I have done 15 deals since. It's very cool. What made you decide, I want to start my own fund? versus I want to go work for another fund or I want to go work startup and do angel investing on the side. Like I think what's so crazy to me is, and we're actually seeing this a little bit more now, is these like emerging fund managers that are like out the gate with their own fund. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to know like thought process behind like starting your own versus going to work for someone else or just like doing your own casual investing on the side. I was actually encouraged to raise a fund when I completed this VC trade school program in San Francisco. And I just remember being like, whoa, that sounds crazy. Like, you think I'm good enough to raise a fund? And that was honest to God truth. There was 25 students in my program, you know, two GPs in the program that were trying to get some help resources to launch their fund. They had met at the White House. I had investment bankers, MBAs. I, I literally did not think... I was good enough to be totally honest. I felt really small in the room. But in the program, I was pretty much MVP, raised the most capital that other cohorts had done into a syndicate deal. At that time, it was a lot for me because I'd never done it before. It was a quarter million dollar deal into a cannabis um, delivery company. And I, once I closed that deal, I was like, I was born to do this. I just knew it. I was like, I love it. It's basically sales. I get to like really be creative in that you get to choose who gets capital to to create things, right? And you have to sell that vision with founders in order to get other investors to co-invest with you. And so doing that first syndicate gave me the experience of running a mini fund 
basically, right? You're setting up an entity, a structure, you're doing the diligence, you're finding investors. It's just like a smaller version of a fund. And so I did a lot of SPVs in and outside of cannabis to build that track record. But I think that venture capital is going through a massive, massive or slow. I think massive is the goal, but evolution in breaking the status quo. Like, why do we have to do two and 20? Why do we have to pay $80,000 to Cooley and Gunnarsson for LPA docs? Like, these are all templated things. It doesn't make any sense. So it, within venture, it's like seed stage funds are really, really new back then. Like, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago. And then Mike Maple Jr. is from Floodgate, like built the first seed stage fund in the Valley. And like one of his darling deals is Lyft. And now we have pre-seed funds. And so, you know, now there are angel funds, syndicate funds, and then there are like managers who don't have any venture experience raising capital. I think that there needs to be more capital out there. So if you have the ability and network to, to raise, go do it. Wherever you came from, you know, as long as you're making good bets, like the thing with being a fund manager is if you don't have a good track record, you can't continue doing your job. So you have to show up and that's the risk. Yeah, it's scary. What's been the most shocking part of this whole journey? Obviously, cannabis is like a bit of like a different industry. So much learning. I think the last five years, it's like every quarter I'm learning and it can can get exhausting. You know, there's a, a beauty about like the lifestyle that I've chosen and the lifestyle that other people have chosen. You know, going back to like the theme of this podcast, like what to do in your early 20s. When you start something new, it takes a lot of energy. When you are grooving in a job for five years, you have the ability to almost like work without thinking. It becomes a lot natural. You can take vacations <laughs> and you know, you have that stability. When you're an entrepreneur, you're like constant grind, like potential like oh shit moments where you just might not be prepared and then a life thing happens and you know you get COVID for a month and you can't work. But and, and no, you're not on anyone's payroll. It's like, you know, input equals your output. So if you're not putting anything in, then you're not getting anything out. So I'm addicted to challenge. And I think that I'm also an extrovert. This job requires a lot of energy talking to people. I think it's made me more of an introvert. And so on the weekends, like, I don't really care to go out to like, unless it's like my really close friends and they're in town and we're hosting. I don't really like, I want to just like rest and hang out and go for some chill hikes. I don't care to be like social in my personal life as much because my professional life is super social already. And that was the reason why I wanted to work in this space. I love working in the cannabis industry and venture capital because they're very social industries and that's where I lean. But energetically, it's like you get bigger in your career you know, more people want to talk to you. And it's like, how do you manage that? With just one person, you have to scale your team, right? And so, you know, we build processes to automate like our inbound of leads and how we, you know, reply to them and queue them up. I have Calendly and I try to do, use technology to enable me to be like a super Helene, but I can only do that to a certain extent. So I think that's one thing that I'm trying to learn is like, what is my capacity? I could push myself to extreme volumes in my early 20s. But, you know, I'm 32 now and I want to have kids and that's going to massively change my body. So not sure what that will look like, but I'm, you know, preparing for that. And I have a lot of women venture capitalist groups that help 
talk about these challenges that women have as entrepreneurs and business owners and, and, and women that want to have families. Obviously shared lots of words of wisdom, especially for those in tech, especially for those in venture. What's that one piece of advice you'd give to all 20-somethings, no matter who they are? I would say don't undersell yourself and do crazy shit in your 20s that makes you excited. I'll talk about both. So at Journey One, we bring on one to two VC fellows every four to six months. And, you know, it's an incredible experience for me to learn more about what, you know, college students are up to nowadays, being a decade of difference. And I've noticed that when, you know, my fellows pitch themselves, they typically, they're still learning to figure out how to present themselves, maybe in a firm environment. And so I would say, you know, start with what you do at Journey One and the things that you work on at the firm. You don't have to say that you're a sophomore in college and that, you know, you work on these clubs and teams like it, not to say that's like not good enough, but I think that in a more professional context, you're kind of setting yourself already a tier below, like the person you're talking to by saying you're still in college. Like that doesn't really matter. Honestly, it's what the work that you're doing now that matters. And so also like talking about yourself in chronological order is not really important. It's really like, you know, what does this person care about now? If they'd like to learn about my track record and history, we can talk about that. But when someone's like, oh, I want to learn about you, it's not necessarily like, what have you done since like middle school, but more so like, what are you, what are you doing now that relates to what I'm doing and how can we potentially do business together? In terms of doing crazy shit in your 20s, there's just so much more flexibility and less responsibility that you have. And I think that looking back, the freedom that I had back then, I could still have it, but the trajectory that I'm on right now is is far from having like the amount of freedom that I had back then. Like, you know, my early 20s, <laughs> waking up at like nine o'clock or 10 o'clock on a weekday was totally fine if you worked late. But I think as, you know, you get older, your commitments change and you should just follow your curiosity and and figure out what you really want to do with your life. And from my perspective, a lot of people live their lives with, you know, I go to school or this is how it used to be. I go to school to be a doctor or a lawyer. And then the rest of my life, I'm a doctor and a lawyer. And I just don't confine with that tradition. I think going to Northeastern in Boston has given me the ability to see different career paths that I could take and then own into one that I want for however, as long as I want to. But the way that I think about it is like, if you have you know, at eight decades to live and let's say 80s, like the, the time that you want to retire, you know, 50 of those decades or 60 of those decades or six of those decades, you can become a specialist in a field and change careers every decade. And that sounds really fun, at least to me. I don't know about to other people. Some people like to cruise. I like to try different things and go on adventures. But that would create a really interesting world where, I don't know, people just have a ton more experience. But I think that is a cultural shift and a mindset shift, much like an entrepreneur is to someone who's been at a company for a long time. Yeah, so many gems there. I feel like it's so obvious that you're so entrepreneurial. Like I think about some people I know that like do the more like teacher thing or lawyer thing. And it's just like, they love to just have the stability. And you're like, if it's not challenging, I want nothing to do with it, which I respect a lot, you know? And I think, I think it's true though. Like you followed your curiosities and you've allowed yourself to switch gears versus like forcing yourself 
to stay in one industry. Very, very fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so fun to chat with you. And I'm so excited to follow along at Journey One and all the cool stuff that you're doing. Could you let everyone know where they can follow you on social, like which channels are best? And then, I mean, maybe you might get a fellow or two out of this. So we'll see. Please. You can reach out. We don't have like a jobs listing on our website, but journey1.vc is our website. I am the most Googleable person <laughs> that you could probably find on the internet. So if you want to LinkedIn me, I'm happy to chat. And I'm also on Twitter at hservion. Um, a little harder to find, but it's easy. And my, my journey in venture feels like it's just begun. And each fund is a de- decade of dedication. So for those that are interested in the sectors that I invest in, please reach out. For any potential LPs, I'm here. Would love to chat. And for my 20-something-year-olds and even younger, the world is for you to take on and for you to decide and no one else. So go do your thing. I love that. And I loved your comment too about like not saying your age, you're saying you're in college and like almost demeaning yourself or not saying you have that much experience. Just let your work speak for itself. You don't have to justify it all the time. I think really strong point. Uh, Well, thanks so much for coming on. This was a blast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I'm excited to continue building our relationship. Thank you for having me on the pod and will definitely share on my end. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Dear 20 Something. If you enjoyed it, you can give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram or subscribe here or anywhere you get podcasts.